Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Hyperacademic Calling Deborah Plant. Dr. Deborah Plant is an African-American literature and Africana studies scholar and is the author of the introduction and afterword for Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. As a note for listeners, throughout our conversation, Dr. Plant refers to Cujo by his given African name, Kosolo. The posthumous first-time publication of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, with Cujo's voice recounted in his vernacular, is a seminal moment in American literary, historical, and anthropological documentary culture. Barracoon is on sale May 8th in hardcover from our imprint, Amistad. So this morning on the phone with us, we have Dr. Deborah Plant, an African-American literature and Africana studies scholar and the author of an introduction and afterword of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. Deb, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's my pleasure. We don't get what... Uh, classical slave narratives bring us in terms of this heroic voice that is triumphant and that, uh, you know, is all about freedom and, and, and freeing others who were still enslaved. Uh, Kosala's story is less about, about freedom in America than it is about uh, a longing to return to his, his origins uh, in West Africa. And it's not so much a triumphant voice in the sense of, of what, say, we find in, in a narrative like that of Frederick Douglass. So we get another, another side of the story, another experience of the story. And we get a lot of agony in terms of what happens to a human being when that human being is deracinated, uprooted from her or his home just what that means and how 
how fragmented uh, a life can become when one is uprooted, torn from one's village, from one's uh, the continent on which one lives, and is forced to leave everything one knows. That's a that's a story. It brings us to to an understanding about just how terrorizing that is, how traumatic that is, and this and it brings this anguish, this pain, this sadness. Um, and even though we can see the resilience in uh, in Kosala's life, we still see and, and feel and experience the depression that he experienced and, and feel what that did to him his entire life, how it, it questioned his sense of self and who he was, his identity. Uh, one of the aspects of being a human being is that uh, we, we have this need to know who we are, this need to know where we belong. And then we get to see, in Kosla's case, what happens to that sense of self when one is so uh, violently uh, rudely uprooted from one's origins. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, August 24th, 2018. So I have been told this is our third and final study session on Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. We are picking up on chapter seven. We had an extra break in between sessions because of my teacher training exam last Friday, but that's done. Back on schedule, normal time, finishing the book this week. We will only have one audio segment and then we will be all done. So if you have final thoughts on what we read, now would be the time to share. Uh, we heard Deborah G. Plant. Uh, she helped collect this book. She wrote the uh, introduction uh, for the text that we already heard. You heard some of her comments uh, in the audio segment just now. I heard that that was only a portion of the interview. Uh, I am I am greatly suspicious anytime that I hear this book talked about by an author, particularly if it's somebody who's knowledgeable about this text, white or non-white, if there is no mention of the godmother, suspected race soldier, Charlotte Mason, uh, and the fact that she paid Zora Neale Hurston for this book. She also uh, paid uh, Kasula for contributing to this text, and she had her own motivations for why she wanted this book released. Uh, I think that is hugely, maybe the most important bit of information about this text. Uh, Miss Mason, the godmother, is mentioned in the dedication for the text. Uh, so, yeah, that should uh, that should greatly impact how we process all information in the book. I'll leave it there for now. We're starting in Chapter 12, Zora Neale Hurston, Barakun, the story of the last black cargo final session on the Cow's Book Club. Chapter 12 Alone One night, Celia wake up in the night and say, Kudja, wake up. I dream about a chillin'. Look like they cold. 
I tell her she think too much. Go back to sleep. It hurt in me, cause it a cold night in November in the 1908. And I remember how Celia used to visit the children when they was little. To see they got plenty quilts, so they keep warm, you understand me. The next day, she said, Cudgel, come on, lest we go see our children's grave. So I say yes, but I try not take her, cause I afraid she worry about them. So I go in the church and I make it like a busy, so she forget it, the graveyard. When I come out to church, I don't see her nowhere. So I look across the hill and I see her in a family lot. I see Silly going from one of her children gray to the other, like she covered him up with more quilts. The next week my wife left me. Cutter don't know. She ain't been sick, but she died. She don't want to leave me. She cry cause she don't want me be lonesome. But she leave me and go where her children. Oh, Lord. Lord. The wife, she the eyes to the man's soul. How can I see now? When I ain't got it, no eyes no more. The next month, my Alec, he died. Then I just like I come from the African soil. I got nobody but the daughter-in-law, Mary, and the grandchildren. I tell you, she my son's wife, so she stay in the compound, and she take the land when I go with Celie and our children. Old Charlie, he the oldest one, come from the African soil. One Sunday after my wife left me, he come with all the others to come across the water and say, Uncle Cudgel, make us a parable. Well, then I say, you see old Charlie there? Suppose he stop here on the way to church. He got the parasol, cause he think it gonna rain when he leave the house. But he look at the sky, and sighed, it ain't gonna rain, so he set it there by the door and go on to church. After the preaching, he go on home, cause he think the parasol at Cudgel House, it's safe. He say, I get it next time I go that way. When he come home, he said to one the children, go to Cudgel House and tell him I say, send me my parasol. The parasol? It pretty. I like it keep that one. But I asked them all, is it right to keep the parasol? They all say, no, it belonged to Charlie. Well, I say, my wife, she belonged to God. He left her by my door. I appreciate my countrymen. They come see me when they know I'm lonely. Another time they come to me and say, Uncle Cudgel, make us another parable. I bow my head in my hands. Then I lift it up again. Footnote. This is a characteristic gesture when he begins a story. End of footnote. Deanna talk. I don't know. Me and my wife, we been riding. I think we go to Mount Vernon. The conductor go to her and say, Oh, lady, where you going to get off? She say, Plateau. I look at her. I say, How oh, you say you going to get off at Plateau? I thought you going to Mount Vernon with me. She shake her head. She say, I don't know. 
I just know I get off at Plateau. I don't want to leave you, but I got to get off at Plateau. The conductor blow once, he blow twice, and my wife, she say goodbye, cudgel. I hate to leave you, but she get off at Plateau. The conductor come to me and ask the old man, where you going to get off? I say, Mount Vernon. I traveling yet. When I get to Mount Vernon, I no talk to you no more. I had spent two months with Kazula, who was called Kajo, trying to find the answers to my questions. Some days we ate great quantities of clingstone peaches and talked. Sometimes we ate watermelon and talked. Once it was a huge mess of steamed crabs. Sometimes we just ate. Sometimes we just talked. At other times, neither was possible. He just chased me away. He wanted to work in his garden or fix his fences. He couldn't be bothered. The present was too urgent to let the past intrude. But on the whole, he was glad to see me, and we became warm friends. At the end, the bond had become strong enough for him to wish to follow me to New York. It was a very sad morning in October when I said the final goodbye and looked back the last time at the lonely figure that stood on the edge of the cliff that fronts the highway. He had come out to the front of his place that overhangs the Cochrane Highway that leads to the bridge of that name. He wanted to see the last of me. He had saved two peaches, the last he had found on his tree, for me. When I crossed the bridge... I know he went back to his porch, to his house full of thoughts, to his memories of fat girls with ringing golden bracelets, his drums that speak the minds of men, to palm nut cakes and bull roarers to his parables. I am sure that he does not fear death. In spite of his long Christian fellowship, he is too deeply a pagan to fear death but he is full of trembling awe before the altar of the past. Appendix Takoi, or Atako, children's game. A memory test game played by two players. One player, A, the tester, squats facing the diagram which is drawn on the ground. The other player, whose memory is to be tested, squats with his back to the figure. A grain of corn is placed in each of the three circles between the lines. Each of the lines, one, two, three, have a name. Number one, Akinjo Makini. Number two, Abaja Lefon. Number three, Apun Dakre Admejie. A points at line one, at W, and B says, Akinja Makini. A points to line two, and B says, Abaja Lefon. A goes on to line three, and B says, Apuundakra Admeejie. Then A points to circle one, and B says, Corn. A removes the grain of corn from the circle and goes back to line one at W. B recites the name again. A goes to line two and three as before, then to circle one. B says, no corn. 
Then A points to circle 2, and B says corn. A removes the corn from circle 2 and returns to line 1, W, 2, and 3, and B gives the names as before. Then A goes to circle 1, and B says no corn. To circle 2, and B says no corn. To circle 3, and B says corn. The corn is removed from circle 3, and A returns to line 1 at W, and goes through the three lines and circles as before. Of course, if B remembers that there is no corn in any of the three circles, A then points to line 1 at X, and B says, Akinjomakini, and A goes on to lines 2 and 3, and then on to circle 1 between X and Y, and B says, corn. A removes the corn and returns to line at W and goes through the empty circles to lines at X and the empty circle. B says no corn, and A goes on to the next circle where B says corn. The corn is removed, then back to line 1 at W, and the game keeps up until the 12 circles have been emptied of corn if B's memory is good enough. Another game seems to be akin to both billiards and bowling. Three balls are racked up, and the player stands off and knocks them down with seven balls in his hand. The top ball of the three must be hit last with the seventh thrown ball. Stories Kosula told me. There are no windows in Kosula's house. It was a cold day in December, and the door was closed. The little light came from the pine knots in the fireplace. It is crude, but suits his needs very well indeed. There are two pieces of iron slanting slightly upward in each inside wall of the fireplace. It is an African idea transplanted to America. They are placed there to support the racks for drying fish. Kozula smokes a great deal and taps his pipe quite often. All of his pipes have tops that he has made himself to keep the fire from falling out as he works. The pipe lids are just another of the evidences of the primitive, the self-reliance of the people who live outside the influence of machinery. There is something in the iron pot bubbling away among the coals. We eat some of the stew and find it delicious. It is a sort of stew of all flesh shredded in some way. Kazula lights his pipe again. You want me to tell you story about Afriki? I done forget all that. I've been in America so the 69 year last August. It been so long I have anybody talk with, I forget. You don't be mad with Uncle Kudjo if he forget, baby. I wouldn't hurt your feeling for nothing in this world. I assure him that I can never be angry with him, no matter if he never remembers a word, but praying strongly within that he remembers. We sit for a long time in silence. I tell him a few stories after giving him a chance to think, and he is delighted. Finally, he turns eagerly towards me, his face alight. McGuire, tell you this a story. Three men, you understand me, they agree they ain't gonna tell one on the other. 
One day these tree men, they say, we ain't got no meat. Lest we go in the woods and find a cow invited up. They hunt till they find a fat one and they kill it. They all get round it. One say, I want a hind leg. Others say, I want a hind leg. Third one say, I want a hind leg. A beaming face is turned to me to see if I get the point that three men can't get a hind leg off of one cow. He is very happy that I appreciate the dilemma in the tale. They gin fight and fight. One say, I kill you. Very expressive gesture of conflict. Others say, I kill you. Very hearty laughter. The struggling gestures continue. They fight till they come to the highway, and the officers see them fighting, you understand me? And he say, looky here, what y'all fighting about? One of the men, he say, if you don't fooly me, I won't fooly you. He asked the other, he say, if you don't fooly me, I won't fooly you. The third man, he say the same thing. So the officer, he go to the king and say, I found three men, they fight. But when I asked him, what for they fight? They all say, if you don't fooly me, I won't fooly you. The king summons them to appear before him. And he say, he say, what's the matter, you three men? They all say same thing again. Hearty chuckling. Then the king, he say, something they do, they don't want to tell. They is men of strong friendship. Then he give them ten coats, ten shoes, ten of everything, and sent them off. They went back and vied the cow eagle. Murthy tears ran down the cheeks of Kozula, and he shook with chuckles long after the tale was finished but he could not be persuaded to tell another that day. You come again Tuesday next week, and I tell you something if I think. But Uncle Cudgel getting old. I've been in the murky soil since 1859, I forgets. On the Tuesday after the New Year, I found Cudgel in a backward-looking mood. He was with his departed family in the land to the west. He talked about his boys he grew tearful over his wife. My so lonely. I lost my wife to 15 November 1908. We've been together a long time. I married her Christmas Day, 1865. She a good wife to me. There was a long, feeling silence. Then he turned on me and spoke. Oh, Charlie, he the oldest one come from Africa. Come one Sunday, after my wife left me, and say, Uncle Cudjo, make us a parable. Then I asked him, how many limbs God give the body so it can be active? They say six, two arms, two feet, two eyes. I say they cut off the feet, he got hands to fend himself. They cut off the hands, he wiggle out the way when he see danger come. But when he lose the eye, then he can't see nothing come upon him. He finish. My boys is my feet. My daughter is my hands. 
My wife, she my eye. She left. Kajo finish. It was two o'clock, and Kazula excused himself that he might work on his fence before dark. Come see me when tain't cold. Two days later, I sat beside his fire in the windowless house and watched him smoke until he was ready to speak. I told him a story or two, and finally he glowed and stirred. It a man, you know. He got a son. Six men, you understand, they follow him all the time. The long runny, the old man say, Son, these men always in your house. You know what six men do to you? They don't do nothing to me. That what the sons say. And always the seven men be together till he get grown and the time come for him to marry. The old man, he want to try these six men. So when the son marry, he hide the girl and then he take a rammer, ram, and he kill it and cut off the horns. He fix it and make it look like the girl. Then he say to the boy, go tell your friends that you married a girl last night and she feel dead and I don't want the king to know. And dig a grave. He wants the friends to dig the grave and bury her. Perhaps she was too young and never had known no man. Well, the six men come to dig the grave, but only two stayed to finish dig, and four went spread the news, clean till it reached to the king. The king then sent for the old man and said to him, Your son just married a girl, where she? She at home, the old man said to the king, and he say, Where your house? I wants to see. The king goes with him to the house, and he show him the girl. Then he say, well, what you bury in the hole? He say, the rammer. But the king wants satisfied, and he have to dig up the grave and let the king see the rammer himself. Then he tell the king how tis. I ask of my boy about these six men, and he say they all right. All the time they sleep and eat and go with him, I won't know they friendship, so I kill her the rammer. The king say, you have knowledge. And so he paid the two what stayed dig the grave and don't say nothing and killed the four men what talk and betrayed a friend. The Monkey and the Camel One day, I tell you this one, the Uthakudum weasel went up the melon tree to eat himself some fruit. The camel, he liked melon all the time. So when he see the weasel in the tree, he go ask him, throw him some. The weasel throw him some. Then he come down and go in his house. The camel, he still wanted some more melon, so he wait. After a while, the monkey, he go to the melon tree to get him some too. The camel, he hurry up under the tree and say to the monkey, Give me some de melons, too. And the monkey throw him some. Then he asked the monkey to throw him more, and he eat at that. Then he asked for more and more till the monkey, he get tired. He want to come down from the tree and go home to dinner with his fruit. So he tell the camel he too greedy. 
and if he want more melon, let him climb the tree himself and get his some. That make the camel mad. So he say that the monkey is a very mouthy animal with an ugly red behind and very ugly nose. Now the monkey, he know that his nose is ugly, and he is very shamed for the camel to speak about it. So he say that the camel is a creature with a no hind quarters. The camel get so mad at that, till he reach up the tree and grab the monkey and carry him off. Well, after he walk a while, he meet the rhinoceros and he ask, Camel, how come you seize the monkey? The camel say, let him tell himself. The monkey, well, I was up the melon tree eating some fruit, and the camel come along and ask me to throw him some. I did throw him some, and more and more. But when I was tired and want to go home, he says that I am a beast with ugly nostrils and sunken eyes. And I got very mad, say that the camel is a beast without a rump, and he done seized me and tote me off. The rhinoceros said that the monkey was wrong to speak of the camel so, and told him not to let him go. So the camel carried him on. After a while, they met the leopard and said, Oh, camel, what make you seize the monkey? Is he done you wrong? Let him tell you himself what he done. The monkey, well... I was up the melon tree eating some fruit, and the camel, he come up under the tree and asked me to throw him down some fruit. Well, I throw him some, then some more, then some more, till I get him very tired. Then I say, he is a lazy animal that worries other animals when they go to get fruit. Let him climb the melon tree himself. Then he say, I am a creature with no manners and a red behind. And I say that he is a beast with no behind at all, and not enough tail to hide the place where his behind ought to be. Then he grabbing me and bring me here. The leopard said that the monkey was wrong to speak thus of the camel, and that the camel must not let him go. So the camel carried him on. After a while, they come to the house of the weasel, and he was sitting outside the doorway. He seen the camel with the monkey, and he asked the camel, Oh, camel, how come you seize the monkey? What he done wrong? The camel say, Let him tell it himself. The monkey say, Well, I was up the melon tree getting fruit for my wife. And the camel come under the tree and ask me to throw him down some fruit. I done throw him some, then more, then more, till I was tired. And I said he was a greedy beast whose rump looked like he'd been drinking kanya, a powerful laxative. And he grabbed me and bring me here. Now the weasel, he feels sorry for the monkey, and he know himself that the camel is worrisome under the fruit tree. So he said a while, then he say, I will be the judge twixt you two. And they both say, all right, you be the judge for us. The first thing he say, you monkey, come sit here on my right side. And you camel, sit here on my left, whilst I decide the question. 
They both done what he say, and he sat there quiet for a while. Then he opened his mouth. Oh, monkey, I sentence you for speaking so to the camel to leap up that tree whilst I run into my hole. And he done that, and the camel was left sitting where it was. After a while, he went away. Story of the Jonah What you want me to talk, Jonah? Who and what kind of prophet is Jonah, I don't know. I couldn't tell you that. God speaking unto Jonah, go tell Nineveh to turn to me, cause they sins it come before me. Jonah say, no, I ain't going. Jonah say, well, being I here, he going to torment me. I going to get away from here. So he went there, you know, in the vessel ship to go to Joppe. That a country, you know, where God ain't going to bother. Listen, cut your say so. He didn't know it. God is everywhere. And so he went on to the ship to go to Joppe. And God looked at him. God see Jonah in the vessel. And so when he went to the vessel, God looked at Gesture of a penetrating look at him. He see the Jonah there. He see the Jonah there. So God went to the east and, gesturing of unlocking and flinging wide a door, unlocky the storm room, say to the storm, come out. Hand uplifted in a kingly commanding gesture, and the storm started. Then God went to the west, unlocky another storm room. Gesture. Come out. Come out of there. Then God went to the north, unlocky that storm room, tell it to come out. Then he went to the south, unlocky another storm room, and another storm in the south. All storms come meeted together. All storms come and meeted together and the vessel can go nowhere. Now, what did the captain say? That would I go tell you now. The captain say, that's not the first time I go travel in the sea. Something wrong. And the man say, Captain, there's a man in the boat, and then he pay his fare. The captain say, whereabouts is he? They say, he way down in the bottom of the boat, he say, go tell him to come here. I go and tell you what the sailors say when they went down in the bottom of the boat. I go and tell you what they say to Jonah. They say, oh, sleeper, wake up from your sleep and call on your God, else we go perish in the sea. When he come to the captain on the deck, he say, who you? He, Jonah, say, I'm a Hebrew and run away from God. Captain say, what must we do now so the sea can become calm? He say, heave me overboard. The captain say, I ain't going to do it till we draw the lot. We don't want to be guilty of your blood. They draw the lot, and the lot fell on Jonah. Looky here. God prepared a whale right alongside of the ship with his mouth wide open. Gesture. When they throw him in, 
The whale took in, carried him to Nineveh three days and three nights. When he got to the Nineveh, he heaved him on the shore. Ain't no shade in the seashore. So God suffered a gourd vine grow over he head for the shade. Jonah won't go to Nineveh. So God sended the worm and cut a gourd vine, slashing in gesture, down, hand lifted straight up. God said, Jonah, your name called. He said to him, go into Nineveh. And when they got there, he said, forty days and forty nights, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the king say, this is the man of God. Three days, three nights, the cows, the pigs, neither the mules, neither the chickens give him nothing to eat. Nobody eat, neither drink. So Jonah went to the mountain to see how it gonna be overthrow. But instead of that, God blessed him. So then Jonah got mad. Say, Laura, didn't you tell me you gonna destroy that city? God say, Jonah, there's 7,000 women and children in that city don't know right from wrong. If you think I go destroy them, you's crazy. How long, Nineveh, the blessy? I don't know. That's the end right there. That's the fur I can go. Now, this Abraham, father the faithful. He had nephew named Lot. Now, that's right. Both of them kin folks. They have servant mind to stock what they raise it. One day, they two servants, they were quarreling. Abraham said to the lot, We two kinfolks, these servants, they quarrel. Don't let it that break it the friendship. Now, that a right, that's a left. Now, which way you going? Lot said to the Abraham, I going to Sodom and Gomorrah. Where you going? Abraham say, I going to the land of Canaan. When they so much in sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord, he took it to angels to pass Abraham's tent. Abraham seen them and want to bow to them. And then he went and get kid and dress him and set it before them to eat a dinner. When they get through eating, they start to Sodom and Gomorrah. One the angels say to the other, let's not hide it, our business from Abraham. Let's tell him where we going. So they say, Abraham, do you know we going to Sodom and Gomorrah to set it afire, go and burn the place down? So much sin went it before God that God going burn the place out. No, Abraham say, if I find the fifty righteous, will you spare the city? The angel say, yes, for your sake. Abraham went to Sodom and Gomorrah and came find the fifty righteous. If I find the forty righteous, will you spare the place? They say, yeah, for your sake, we spare them. He fell back to twenty-five and couldn't find them. When he called for ten, the Lord won't listen. He flee away from him. Then the two angels go to Lot's house and tell him, now you leave here and don't look it back.
When the people see the daughters of Zion come to Lot's house, they say to Lot, What is they doing there? Lot say, Don't bother them. Then the angel pull Lot back and wave the hand, and all the people go blind. Then they say to Lot, You flee away from here just as quick as you can, and don't look it back. Lot's wife look it back and turn to a pill of salt, and she be dead till judgment day. Poor cudgel, I no look it back. I press it forward. The Lion Woman Three men, they each have a lady. One say, if I live to marry a wife, when she have a son, he go get down on top of an elephant to ride. Another one say, if I live to have a wife, when she have a son, he go get down on top of a zebra for a ride. The third man, he say, if I live to marry this a girl I love, when she have a son, he go get down on top of a lion for a saddle horse. The people, they say, how he gonna do that? He can't do that because before he catch the lion, the lion catch him. He say, oh no. Well, he married a girl and they have a son. When they boy, he gets so he can run and throw the spear from the hand, you understand me? The man, he go in the woods and he found two young lions. But they mama, she gonna kill her something for them to eat. So he take it to two lions and kill it one and take it to hide and stretch it on the fence in the garden. The other one, you understand me, he chained by the neck to a tree. The mama lion, she come home, and she miss her babies, and she know the man take her children. She feel hurty, you understand me? Her breasts swell way like this. She make up her mind she going to punish the man for killing her babies. So she turn herself into a woman, and many men see her come into the village. She look very fat and handsome, and all the men want to marry her. She tote a purse here upon her hip. She say she will marry the man that throws something in the purse. Everybody, they chunking at the purse. They chunk and they chunk. Some throw too far. Some don't throw far enough. Nobody make it go in the purse. The man that kitchen the lions, he stand and looky, but he don't try chunky in the purse. He love his wife, and he don't want no more wife. She watch him, and she ask him, Why you no try Chunky in the purse? Don't you want me for your wife? He say, I don't want a chunk. I got a wife already. She say, But I wanted you to chunk. She beg him, please, till after a while, just so he pick up something with his left hand, throw this away. But it went right in the purse. So she went home with him to his house. Soon she get in the house, she see the skin stretch on the garden fence and see the other one chained to the tree, and she swell up inside of her, and she wish for night to come. She wish it, it was night that minute. She lay in the bed with the man that night, but she ain't never go to sleep. He go sleep, but she wait to kill him. When she see he sleep, she turned back to a lion and got up walking in the house. 
the man, he got dogs, you understand me. And they know she a lying. And they know when she get up to kill him. Just when she go to him to tear him up, the dogs bark and say, no, you don't, no, you don't. That's my massa. And if and you kill him, you can't cross this yard. We kill you. She come back and lay down with the man and wake him up. She say, husband, I can't sleep. Your dogs making so much noise to keep me awake. I think they going to come in the house and bite me. You better go chain them up. He get up and go chain the dogs like she say. Then he go back to sleep. She get up again, but the dogs hear, and they talk so loud she's scared he hear them. So she get back in the bed, and she think what she can do to kill him. In the morning, she say to him, I can't stay with you because your dogs, they won't let me sleep. I'm going home this morning. You going peace away with me? He say he go with a peace away. He go get his hunting spear and his bow and arrow. But she say, what for you take the spear? You mean to kill me on the way? You don't need no arrow neither. He tell her he always take his spear when he go to the woods. But she cry and say she's scared he going to kill her. So he put down the weapons. Then he put on his hunting knife, but she make him take that off too. Then he take your whistle, you understand me, and put it in his shirt and take your nine eggs to eat on the way. Then he go on with her. On the way, they talk. She ask him, if a lion jump on you, what you going to do? He say, I turn to a deer and run away fast. Oh, but a lion overtake a deer. Then what you do? Then I turn to a snake, and I go in the ground. Oh, but the lion catch you before you dig the hole. Well, then I turn. He start to say he turned to a bird and fly up in the tree. But the voice of his father come to him and say, hush. So he say, I don't know what I do then. After a while, they come to a woods, and the woman excuse herself and go in the bush and stay a minute. Then a big lion come out and take right after the man. He think quick what he going to do, and he turn to a bird and fly up in the highest tree. The lion opened one side and took out nine men with their axes and opened the other side and take out nine more and then begin to chop it down the tree. The man, he blown the whistle so his dogs hear him and come. The men, they chop hard at the tree. The lion, she walk round and round and roar what she gonna do when the tree fall. When the tree gin to fall, the man drop one egg and the tree, it come back up again. He blow and blow for his dog, but they ain't heard him yet. He drop another egg when the tree commenced to fall next time and he kept on till the last egg it gone. The tree began to shake again, but he blow and blow on his whistle. One young dog say to the other, well, that seems like master's whistle like here, don't you think so? The old dog say, oh, lay down. You always hear something so you can run in the woods. After a while, the young dog say he hears something again, but the old dog say, no, be quiet. 
The tree is almost chopped down, and the lion stand on her hind legs so she grab him when he fall. The young dog say again, he hear the whistle, and the old dog say, wait, I believe I hear something too. Wait a minute. He listen. Then he say, it is master's whistle. He in trouble too. Let me go in the house and put the eye medicine in the eye. He go in the house and put the medicine in his eye so that he can see clear across the world. Mm-hmm, he say, I see, master, and he in bad trouble. Let's go. They run to the tree faster than anything in the world and kill the lion and all the men. The man flew down from the tree and turned back to himself again. Then the man and the dogs take up all the meat and take it home and throw it in the yard. Then the man, he go in the house with his wife, but he don't tell her nothing, because the old dog, he tell him that if he tell, he will die. When she look in the yard and see all the meat, she say to him, where you get all the meat? And he say, I've been hunting. But he don't tell her that the dogs done made baskets out of plum twigs and brung the meat home. They walk on their hind legs like a man and tote the baskets with their front legs. His wife say, you never brung home all of that meat. No man can tote so much. It too much for one man. You tell me who brung that meat for you. All day she keep that up. Nighttime come and he won't go to bed. She say no, she not sleep with him never no more lest he tell her about the meat. So he tell her, and then she sleep with him. But the next morning, she say to the dogs, Why don't you tell me you can tote meat like a man? Here I been had to wash your eating trough and tote your grub to you, and you plenty able to bring your plate and fetch your own grub. Then the man, he die, because he told what the dog tell him not to, and the people make a great funeral for three days with him. His wife, she cry and cry, cause she make him die. But they go to bury him. But the old dog say, no, wait till his father come. He gone away on a journey. So they wait three more days. And when the father come, he rubbed medicine on his eyes. And he woke him. And he live a long time after that. And his son get down on the line he brung home. This is Robin Miles. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston, edited and with an introduction by Deborah G. Plant. Context of White Supremacy. That is it. There is no second audio segment. I said uh, this book is very short and we are all done. Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo, Context of White Supremacy. If you have commentary you would like to share, concluding thought on the text, the number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564 943 
pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Serious business also to make sure since we are done with this text. We've been talking about uh, the passing of Pamela Evans Harris, guest on the broadcast many, many times over the history of the cows. Uh, and she called in many times as well. Uh, she authored four books. Uh, I said Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. We should read that, I think, as the next book. I do not think I would be able to remain composed uh, to read the book for the duration Certainly not starting next week. Uh, it said I'd be willing to read uh, the interracial con game. Uh, we can do that. I should be have myself together enough so that I can read that, uh, do the narration for that text. So if anybody would like to contribute, invest, narrator for Black Love is a revolutionary act or narrators. We have done that before. If they are a collection of folks who would be down to begin reading for next Friday, that would be grand. That said, again, uh, concluding thoughts on the text. Barakun will get those in this week. Uh, we had a listener write in. Uh, this was from the last commentary, which was two weeks ago. When we had our last segment. We had a listener write in. Question that I asked, why was this book released in 2018? Very important question. Uh, we've been thinking about uh, over the time we've been reading this text. Again, this uh, was sat on for basically uh, 60 years. Um, over 60 years, actually, uh, for a couple of reasons. We've talked about those uh, before. Continuing what the person who wrote in had to say, why was this book released? It is to destroy the heroism, the heroic image of black females by impl implicating them as the very people who were involved in the slave trade. This is because I saw some somewhere in the internet that there is a plan to make a movie about the all-black female soldiers of the Dahomey who played vital roles in defending black people and territories against white supremacist slave raiders, kidnappers, traitors. They fiercely defeated the white supremacist slave raiders in several battle fronts for years. Years after the all-black female soldiers were no more, the white supremacist slave raiders began to meet unmatched fearness, unmatched fearness to raid, kidnap, and destroy the weakened black areas. This book instead is projecting negative images of all the black female soldiers as fierce, merciless, and brutal soldiers against their fellow black people, <clears throat> capturing, cutting off their heads, and selling some survivors as slaves. Uh, the movie, if it will ever be made at all, will not inspire black people in the way that the Black Panther movie did. I have never watched a Black Panther movie, nor any of the likes. I'm not a movie nor TV person. Never spend my dimes nor minutes of my life in that way. Bravo, bravo, bravo. I have not seen Black Panther either. That is interesting. Uh, if such a film is coming out, that is an interesting theory on why this text would be published. 
If other folks have any ideas as to why this book came out this year, 2018, spring, no less. Uh, folks have any thoughts, you can share those. Or if you have any uh, concluding thoughts on the book that finished up today. One question that I asked, uh, the book finished and then there was an appendix with these little anecdotes, uh, little fables, African fables, I guess, that uh, Kasula shared with Miss Hurston. Any idea why those were just kind of included at the end and not really in the, the fabric of the story? Why would they were there at all, really? I guess you could ask in, since they were included uh, towards the end of the text. Or that could have been an editing uh, decision 60 years on. Just thoughts on that. Or if you have anything else to share about the text, uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. folks spectating for the moment they're hanging out while folks are getting their thoughts together what have you i generally try to wait to not give my thoughts or uh notes actually what i can do won't have to do either i can give one of the notes that i found doing a little bit of research uh preparing for the program the godmother charlotte mason she was not mentioned uh in the body of the text this week, Charlotte Osgood Mason, but she was mentioned uh, previously several times. And I talked about her. We read the article last week uh, from the L.A. Review, uh, which gave, I thought, a lot of interesting and important details uh, about this white woman uh, paying Zora Neale Hurston and paying uh, Kasula for their contributions to this work and what her vision was for why she wanted to protect, uh, project uh, this book, this image uh, to the world. Uh, there's a article, my alma mater, the University of Virginia, the problem of white patronage, Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Charlotte Osgood Mason and Zora Neale Hurston. I'm not going to read the entire report, but I think just a portion of it relates to the text. The relative obscurity that the work of Zora Neale Hurston suffered for most of her life speaks to the analytical obstructions caused by the perceived influences of white patrons on the work of black artists. One example of this scholarly misunderstanding of Hurston exists in Nathan Huggins' Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. Huggins devotes four and a half pages to Hurston, but not one discusses Hurston's literary contributions. The focus is instead on whether or not Hurston's darky act was real or a put on. Hurston's relationship with Charlotte Osgood Mason, as well as her tendencies in her own writings to seemingly describe and embody stereotypical and primitive characters, have tended to lead critics like Huggins astray. According to Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, Mrs. Mason, who insisted upon being called Godmother, the group of new Negroes by the group of new Negroes she patronized was extremely human. Mrs. Mason formerly had been involved with the black community through her donations to Southern black schools. Born Charlotte Vander, uh, Vanderveer Quick. Wow. Mason had spent most of her life interested in the folklore of non-white races. Only one race. 
In the early 1900s, she spent months living amongst the Plains Indians while patronized while she patronized Natalie Curtis, the author of a collection of myths and songs entitled The Indian's Book. At the height of the Harlem Renaissance, Mason became interested both financially and personally with the development of new Negro artists such as Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Miguel Covarrubias. According to Langston Hughes, Mason had in the 20s discovered the new Negro and wanted to help him, not because she wanted to see black the black people excel, but because she saw African Americans as America's greatest link with the primitive, that is a direct quote. In order to get her fill of the primitive, she turned to Alan Locke, who furnished her with the artists capable of supplying evidence of black primitism in their work. Uh, she the, the this section it goes on to talk about uh, Langston Hughes as well. She also worked with him and some of his thoughts uh, about her work. He actually there was one quote that uh, Langston Hughes I was going to share. Let's see if I can find it really quick. Uh, maybe I will. Oh wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this it? That's it. Yeah, I'll read it later. Anyway. He's, uh, the report goes on to talk about uh, Langston Hughes as well and some of the problems that regularly came up with the artists and Mason's efforts to control black artists and what they were writing about, that sort of thing. Uh, let's see. Yeah, here we go. Uh, eventually, Hurston's involvement with Mrs. Mason proved confining. If her tales failed to express the desired primitive elements in their work when she was denied support. Hurston explained, there she was, sitting up there at the table with a, a cap on, caviar, and gleaming silver, eager to hear every word on every phase of life on a sawmill job. That's a direct quote from Hurston about uh, the godmother. I must tell the tales, sing the songs, do the dances, and repeat the raucous sayings and doings of the Negro furthest down, direct quote. Langston Hughes, too, severed his relationship with Mason because, as he similarly recounts, she wanted me to be primitive and feel the intuitions of the primitive, but unfortunately I did not feel the rhythms of the primitive surging through me, and so I could not live and write as though I did. I was only an American Negro who had loved the surface of Africa and the rhythms of Africa, but I was not Africa. And I will stop there. Just, I think that's really important for me. Knowing that information made it very, at minimum, made it very difficult to process the narrative, the stories, any of it really, to, to process this as, oh wow, this is the uh, authentic word of Kasula and Zora Neale Hurston putting this together, it just, it seemed more like, or in my view, it's more keeping in mind, this is the creation, this is what uh, a suspected racist, the image that she wanted to project uh, to the world. And remembering the report that I read last week, uh, where Zora Neale Hurston, this was not a book that she bragged about, uh, and, you know, going through life, apparently, uh, with great sorrow and pity and uh, telling other people that she was so disappointed that whites wouldn't publish this book. And that that was not the case. It didn't seem like this was a work that she was really uh, proud about publishing, apparently. If people have information to the contrary, let's hear it. Let's get that uh, on the record. But uh, I just did not feel that way. I expressed uh, some of the things, elements that I thought were peculiar when we talked about this book last week, to have a black male or female, for that matter, in Alabama, 
in the 1920s, early 20th century. And a lot of what you're talking about is your frustrations with other black people. Black people are frustrating to me and others now 2018. But I mean, wow, we're talking Alabama years, decades before the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, almost a century before the lynching museum, uh, that big victim uh, visited. I mean, all the atrocities, I think in the 1920s, this would have been before the Scottsboro Boys case, uh, unless my, my memory is in error. I'll check on that. But I mean, whew, way early era in white terrorism. And most of your frustrations or many of your frustrations are focused on conflicts and disliking by other black people who happen to be born in this part of the world. That is that is peculiar at minimum. Anywho, I'll check again to see if other folks uh, have commentary. Again, final portion of the text. We are all done. There is no second audio segment. Uh, next week, we will be moving on. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a narrator or narrators for Black Love is a Revolutionary Act for next Friday. But this here, our last session on Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. Uh, folks with a hand up, guess it took them a little time to get it together. Uh, if you have any final thoughts you would like to get in on the text, proceed. Yes, Matthew. Uh, greetings, Mr. Demery Four. Yes, greetings. Was that someone else trying to get in at the same time? Uh, that was another line, but they didn't say anything. It sounded like they were uh, just little background noise as they probably prepare to get themselves together. So proceed. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, I wanted to chime in because I'm happy that you read uh, uh, what you read and gave us a little more insight on, <clears throat> you know, the purpose of this book. You know, it has, you know, she had a racist intent, you know, in financing this whole project. And then that puts all the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, why um, Zora Neale Hurston would end up, you know, penniless in the end and not being recognized for work and all of that because of the racist interference. And because, like you said, of the purse springs, strings of uh, Miss Charlotte Mason, you know, she just kind of, uh, that one person, you know, trying to uh, preserve her ideology about uh, other people being primitive, the Native Americans and then later on blacks or whoever else she thought. That is just a racist ideology that she was trying to make a legacy on. So she would go up there with one of the, you know, I think one of the uh, highest or most notorious races, you know. But anyway, uh, back to Kazula, I thought that that last part where it was, I guess, um, uh, folklore or parable or whatever about the lion and the dogs bringing the meat. You know, I read that several times. I listened to it over and over again. I tried to make some sense out of that using, you know, different methods. And really, I can't get any 
thing. And from what I know about African culture, from listening to speakers from the continent, all different countries, you know, and giving those parables and what I've read, I've never encountered anything like that. So it seems to me that unless I'm really missing it, the parables that, uh, you know, and the Africans would give would have, you know, an understanding, something you could understand. You could use some type of formula to find out a lesson in that. And I just, I failed to get that from the last part of the book. And then now that we know exactly what happened, you know, then it's, it's uh, no doubt that, you know, that's exactly what was going on with this uh, literary work. And it probably was a good idea, you know, not to be published for 60 years. Because if you think about it, uh, not only did Kazula, he was the last one, but think of the other millions of others who had lives and, you know, the same encounters, what they encountered. You know, that's just as important as, as his. And if you don't have an accurate uh, rendition of it, you're still at a loss. So uh, I'll mute my line, and I want to say this for last. I thought I heard you uh, uh, mention Pam, Trojan Pam, and um, that we may be doing a book. But did you say that uh, uh, she had encountered something? Uh, she passed away earlier this year, unfortunately. Oh, unfortunately. Oh, man, that makes me sad. Lots of us. Lots of us. We uh, did a program on Wednesday in tribute to her where many folks called in uh, with their commentary and appreciation for her life and work. Uh, but, yeah, I found uh, or a listener mailed me her obituary a uh, few days back, uh, which was the first that I heard of it. I shared it with listeners on uh, social media a few days back, and we did the program uh, in her honor on Wednesday evening. should be in the archives, but I think a lot of people just found out recently, unfortunately. Very sad news. Uh, her passing. She had been having some uh, health issues uh, that I knew about. The listener found out he had been trying to buy her books and was having difficulty uh, getting in touch with her. I had been emailing and, and calling and also had been having difficulty getting in touch with her, which was peculiar in the time that I knew her. And then we found out what, what had happened. But yes, that's why we should be reading Black Love is a Revolutionary Act uh, in her honor starting next week. Uh, if we have folks who would be down to narrate. Okay. Thank you, Gus. And uh, I'll mute my line and uh, I'll put in a vote for that book too. I already have it. I'll be ready. Thank you, Gus. For sure, Mr. Demery Four. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary you would like to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, uh, Gus, and the rest of the callers, listeners on the line. It's uh, Rob in San Diego. Uh, so I um, chimed in late, um, but uh, like Demory 4, I was uh, very confused 
um, with the uh, parable or um, the story that she was telling um, about the animals, I was, uh, wanted to ask if anyone had clarification for that part of the text. And um, it, I guess this is a very short text. I wanted to ask uh, how many audio sessions uh, was this text as well? And that's all I had. Three. Um, we This is our third and final session, and there's only one audio segment. We normally do two audio segments per session, but this is a very short book. And I guess if you if you really want to have it in context, uh, the first audio session that we did, half of that, like a full hour of the audio that we listened to was just the introduction. And a solid chunk of that was not even written by Zora Neale Hurston herself. That was uh, uh, Deborah G. Plant and Alice Walker with the foreword. Oh, we didn't we didn't even hear the foreword, but we talked about it a little bit. So that's the first chunk. And then at the end, you have the appendix with these fables that, you know, I don't know. These could have just been a size. I don't. Anyway, <laughs> it's very, very, very short text. Very, very short text. Uh, and if anybody has clarification on the folk tales that we heard at the end, that would be great. I cannot offer a whole lot that those stories did not resonate with me. I was not able to get any glean, any sort of uh, great insight. And as I said, for me, Charlotte Mason, that really distorts because I was thinking, you know, if I'm a black person in this era, really any era, and a white person is paying me because they want to hear some primitive uh, Negro tales, I might just make up anything. <laughs> it's just like, whatever, make up any kind of wild story that you can think of. Yes, the camel and the monkey were feuding. Yeah, that sounds good. That's a like, I could totally, I could see that happening. These could be totally legit. I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying for me, they did not resonate. I did not understand. And the dominant factor in all of that is not that I don't believe Kasuli. It's that there's someone that I suspect that is a racist that is funding not even just one person, but they're paying the person who wrote it and the person who's doing the, the talking. That is, you know, at least calls for me to be extraordinarily suspicious. Other folks who have a hand up, if you have a comment, or if we certainly have anybody who has an understanding or appreciation for the folk tales that we heard, you should for sure not be a spectator today. You should, you know, get a hand up and share. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, proceed. Let's see. Did you have commentary, Ivy? Or are you just listening? Uh, thanks, Gus. I'm not able to talk right this moment, but um, you know, I'll chime back in when I can. But thank you. Much obliged. Much obliged. Uh, if other folks have any final thoughts, you can feel free to share as well. Uh, the the anecdotes and what have you uh, at the end. Even some of the earlier ones that were not the the animals, like the one where it was the men were fighting and they, I guess they didn't, sn no snitching, no snitching. <laughs> they didn't snitch on each other and the king, I guess, rewarded them. He gave them, it was like 10 of everything and sent them, sent them on their way. Um, 
and then they divided the cow evenly. Did that one resonate with anybody? Did that one? That one I, I did not have as much a, of a problem with. Uh, you know, I guess solidarity at some level. I don't know. Did that one? Did that one resonate with anyone? They're fighting over the cow. They all wanted a hind leg. Uh, three, three males cannot have a hind leg. Or they only two. Uh, that the part about um, three people not being able to get the two hind legs uh, resonated with me, um, especially being where I am now, where people are almost living on top of each other and constantly fighting for resources. Mm. I understood. Yeah, that one. Not a problem. Not a problem. I thought. Um, trying to think if you know also I could say that I understood that one and it is um, you know say similar to say the two women in the Bible or whatever arguing about whose child it was and then the wise man or the king say he cut them in half and get one one half and another and other half and whichever one said no, let her have it. That would be the mother of the child. You know, something like that. You can get something out of it. But the last reading, you know, I I, I looked at it. I read it over and over. I, I can't get anything from it. So if anybody does have it, I appreciate knowing myself. Thanks, sir. Myself as well. If anybody really enjoyed uh, these uh, parables, uh, if you really enjoyed them, or if you really, un or even if you didn't understand them, you just enjoyed them, you thought they, you think they are uh, authentic, uh, that would be grand. Would love hearing uh, that perspective. Uh, let's see. Uh, the person that dialed in, oh, uh, retired firefighter, if you have uh, commentary, you should be, you should be with us, sir. Greetings, Cubby Hurt. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yes. Uh, first, I would just like to uh, say that uh, I uh, didn't uh, have the uh, the time to uh, listen through most of the uh, the three sessions uh, because of uh, situations involving my my mother, but uh, I. Uh, kind of like overlooked uh, some of the uh, information uh, about the uh, the person uh, known as Barracoon. Uh, he had another name that was associated with him that I'm uh, familiar with because I uh, went to a uh, attended college in a, uh, in Oklahoma and it was a family, uh, that last name was Cudjo. And that name is also associated, uh, in, uh, Jamaica as, uh, people who were, uh, runaways. Was that, was that uh, described in the book at any time? Uh, no, sir. Uh, they, hmm. 
they uh, that was the name, the main character, uh, Kasula. Uh, his, I don't know what you would call it. His, when he arrived in this part of the world, he explains in the narrative that <clears throat> the name he, the new name that he got was uh, Kujo, uh, Kajo, Kajo, uh, Kajo right. Lewis. That was a new name uh, that he got, but his original African name was Kasula. Uh, Barakun was the name of the uh, slave pens uh, that they were held in uh, on the West Coast. That wasn't the name. Uh, that wasn't his uh, African name. His African name was uh, Kasula. But uh, no. They okay, didn't, okay, okay. They didn't. Uh, explain or give any origins for the name uh kudjo they just explained that that was uh the name that he t- i think the name that he took himself uh when he got here that was the new name and uh then the rest of the book i think for the most part they use uh kasuba to describe or to to reference him by yes yeah, it's pretty much a, a historical uh name uh because uh, of the uh, maroon in uh, the area of the earth that's called Jamaica, who uh, is uh, quote unquote escaped from uh, that form of uh, mid, uh, white supremacy, uh, at least from the fields anyway. And uh, and what as I mentioned it when I was in college, uh, I kept I, I kept hearing this student, this student uh, whose name was Lance Cudjo. And I always thought that was a strange name. I didn't know anything about it until watching a uh, a documentary on uh, on uh, uh, indigenous peoples in this part of the world. Uh, of course, just like everybody else that's non-white, they were uh, mistreated and deceived by white supremacists uh, with some sort of... Uh, treaty where it was supposed to be uh, given something and it was quote unquote was not carried out and the uh, family still had the the uh, receipt and or documents uh, and uh, they flashed the, the next part of the episode of the documentary they flashed to the actual people and uh, I saw I saw who was the basketball coach at Langston University during the time when I, when I was there and his last name, he was uh, his student, the student that I mentioned, he was his uh, father, uh, the, the head basketball coach. And uh, his name, his last name was Kudjo. So, you know, I'm kind of like seeing that I saw that name, but I, I saw the name and the actual person uh, that the, uh, the book is talking about. Uh, uh, it, well, actually, you can easily you can actually uh, uh, see it on YouTube. Uh, the, the person, the actual person that uh, that uh, the book is talking about, and uh, they also uh, 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 made up and put in front of a church that he started a bust uh, in Mobile, Alabama, uh, re- kind of like recently. Uh, I don't know if that was talked about at all on the program, but uh, just some observations that I had, you know, just to uh, be able to have something to say, <laughs> being that I didn't uh, participate in the book reading. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Right on. Uh, retired firefighter. Uh, well, 
it is all done now, so we'll all be starting with a uh, fresh slate, as they say, uh, next Friday. Uh, brand new text. Uh, we'll all be starting from page one. Uh, if other folks have commentary, uh, particularly if you have any commentary about the, the fables and such at the uh, end of the text, uh, and I just want to make sure I do get on the record, everything in this book can be totally true. Let's say for a moment it is. The reason that I have suspicion or anybody else, in my view, that is totally logical, the system of white supremacy, primary weapon, deception. We've talked a lot, especially in the book club, about ghostwriters and how many times, how many books we've read where whites have had a hand in the writing and what type of influence that has on the final product. That's the case with Richard Williams' book, Serena uh, Williams' dad, Venus Williams' dad. That's the case with uh, Madiba's autobiography, tons of the texts uh, that we've read uh, on this program. The system of white supremacy, where you have a white woman funding this tech that warrants is logical to be sus uh, to be suspicious at minimum, especially given the objective that she states bluntly about wanting to show this primitive side to the world. Uh, so everything in this text could be totally true. Receiving that appreciating that, learning from that is obstructed by the system of racism, white supremacy. That's why it needs to be done away with as soon as possible. Uh, the person who dialed in 0639, 0639, did you have uh, commentary? May I be heard? Absolutely. How are you this evening, Gus? Right poorly. Right poorly. Wow. Okay. I want to ask you what that means. Unfortunately, I got in late, and so I didn't hear the last section. I'm, as a new participant, I'm trying to figure out how this system works and what your time and everything is. But the previous caller mentioned um, the word or the name Cujo, and I would like, to, as soon as I heard him say that, I, it, I knew it was um, similar, and so I looked up uh, examples of Ghanaian day names, they name by the day of the week, and it's spelled K-U-J-O-E, Cujo. How is it spelled in the book? Uh, C-U-D-J-O. Uh, okay. And again, that's the name that he uh, picked uh, stateside. The name that he uses for the bulk of the book is Kasula. Right. I just thought that was odd that there would be a Ghanaian name, Kujo. It could be pronounced, even though it's spelled different, it's pronounced the same. I don't know if that has any meaning or significance. It's just something that, you know, raised my awareness when I heard the previous caller talk about. Thank you. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary thoughts. Apparently we didn't get anyone who was just, or at least we didn't get any live listeners who were just uh, thrilled about the fables at the end of the book, or maybe they're, they're being shy. It would be grand to hear from those folks if they are present. Uh, but if any other folks have uh, commentary questions they want to get in, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Man, guys, you are, well, first of all, greetings to you. Greetings to uh, all the callers on the line. You threw me a, a, a layup and uh, made me feel better about 
my, I guess, take on this book. My take on it is that, I mean, I have a lot of scattered thoughts, but my take on it is that I don't trust it at all. Um, when you think about all the things that you pointed out and that you read um, tonight as well as um, uh, last week about how, you know, a uh, race soldier financed his book. She, she paid the author. She paid um, Kasuba. And the fact also that it was released after she passed away. And immediately this book, in my view, was suspect to me. Um, just even getting, I believe, um, you, I want, I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you just pointed this out a moment ago as well, that uh, it was a black woman who did, I don't know, the introduction or the forward, whichever one that was talking about the plagiarism. So it's like you got this black person talking about, you know, this, this alleged plagiarism, which, you know, she's not here to defend herself, so I don't believe that. Um, I just kind of take that with a grain of salt. Um, it could or could not be true. I'm not going to just believe it because a victim said it, because a victim could be deceived and misled uh, into um, saying something like that. And, you know, thinking about also the things that you pointed out about how, you know, there's just all this, there's all this complaining about black people, but all this defending of white people, that is just, I mean, that right there just really cuts at the, the credibility of the book and, and, and sounds like something that serves white interests. Um, and, you know, they, they do a lot of lying about slavery. And I'll, I'll say this um, again, that again, I do not believe that. I believe that it's, it's, it's a bunch of lies in terms of um, black people selling other black people to white people. Um, and it's a new lie because I remember when that lie was not being told. I remember when white people taught that white people invaded Africa at gunpoint with chains and shackles and kidnapped everybody that they enslaved. And now they're telling uh, a new lie. And the newer lies are, are, is that black people weren't enslaved at all, that we were immigrant workers and that we were happy and well fed. There are books on this, and these are in Texas um, Texas textbooks, as well as um, a book somewhere else. That might be Texas, too. I can't remember where it was because some race soldier was talking about that as well. But I'm just really referring to the black woman who talked about this, and she showed it on a, on a video on a Facebook about where it was talking about we were immigrant workers and this, that, and the other. So they just, you know they tell a lot of lies. So I don't really have no, I just really don't trust this book at all. Um, and I'm glad for the extra background information that you read last week and some things that you read this week to um, just bring even more clarity uh, to all of this. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for what you shared. And um, yeah, I, I think at least for now, that's, that's all I had. That's all I could think of in terms of my notes and uh, I'll mute my line. Thanks everyone. Thanks Gus. Much obliged, Ivy. I would be interested in hearing because uh, there were a number of cows listeners who requested that we read this book. Again, it was just uh, published a few months ago uh, and it got a lot of attention in uh, major press outlets. So listeners saw it. They wanted to read it. They were intrigued by the write-ups and what have you. I'd be interested in 
what they think, like based on, you know, what they saw, if they read something or heard an interview or however they found out about this book, uh, what they thought it was going to be. And then, you know, if you read it or if you listened in with us, now what? Now that you've read it, now that we got to the conclusion, you know, what do you think? Uh, did it meet your expectations or what have you? I'd be very uh, curious. I can speak for myself the little bit that I knew about the text going into it. Um, I, I mean, I guess to Ivy's point, the immediate focus, because we, as I said, we spent, um, I think, an hour before we even got into the text. We didn't even get to chapter one of the book because uh, of the introductions in the text, plural, uh, and the forward, which wasn't even a part of the audio book by Alice Walker. There's so much packing at the beginning and so much of that is focused on black people selling other black people. That's such, that was something I was not anticipating. I was not, you know, thinking, yes, that's what this book is going to be focused, focused on, uh, the, the, the story of the last black person to survive the middle passage. And we're going to be reading about black people selling other black people. Like that just seems very, uh, incongruent if whites are most to blame for what they call the middle passage triangle trade. Um, but hearing so much of that at the very beginning of the text and particularly, uh, it was in, in Alice Walker's for Alice Walker cowbell, same Alice Walker who brought us the color purple marvel of uh, black male and black female harmony. Uh, Alice Walker's forward, uh, where she says, and it's in all capital letters. And I think it's in, uh, italics, uh, Africans, weren't just victims of slavery. I'll go because I highlighted it. Uh, but that's in, in the forward of the text. I was not expecting that when I read about the book and, you know, was hearing about, oh, this is what this is about. Oh, okay, that's that's great. We should do it for the book club. Um, that brought a lot of suspicion uh, for me, and especially because in the text it's presented as, for most Black people, this is news. For most Black people, they don't accept this. And I just don't think that that's accurate, 2018. I just heard uh, randomly Black people presenting that very argument to minimize white supremacy, that we can't just sit around and talk about white people because other Black people were selling. I just heard, like in between us doing segment number two of this book and the session that we're doing today, just ran. And I hear it all the time, like on the program, you know, just going about my business uh, between yoga classes and what have you. I hear it on a regular basis. I think that that's false, that black people don't know about or don't accept this or don't, you know, factor that into the equation when thinking about racism or us being slaves. Uh, the earlier aspect of slavery uh, in racism. Maybe that's just me. Any other folks have uh, final Thoughts, questions, comments that they want to get in on Barakun. Yes, ma'am. I just want to make a quick comment since no one else was speaking up. Man, oh my goodness, that is so true what you just said, Gus. Like, it is a very rare occasion that you will find a victim who does not believe who challenges this what i call new lie about black people selling other black people they will assert this and they don't have no proof or no evidence or no nothing or no logic or anything else in my view um, because there's a whole lot of holes in that lie um, a lot of contradictions but you hear 
many of us, I would even say most people who speak on it, come back with that 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 statement. A lot of us believe that and 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 say that. So that is not true. And one more quick thing, another uh, new lie, which you I, I want to say you talk about it all the time, but forgive me if I'm if I'm wrong about that. Um, about that that Sally Hemings was not raped. That you know he had a relationship with a 14 year old child. And my thing is. The race soldiers, the white people who who say that and who propagate that lie and who tell that lie, I don't even think they realize that they are child rapists themselves to even suggest that a 14-year-old child can have a relationship with an adult. Or worse, they do realize that they're child rapists for saying that, and they just don't care. I'll mute my line. Indeed, I have written about that a few times, as did uh, Pam the Great. Uh, software developer in Wisconsin. Uh, did you have commentary? You should be with us as well. Uh, yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm in a store, so I'm, I'm trying to exit here. Um, so I just, I had a question to pose to the call, uh, listeners who actually have the text. Um, what do you think the significance was of uh, the plagiarism portion that was actually in the, I guess, the afterwards of the book, in the, the the published book actually being included in the introduction in the audio book. I don't know if you addressed that or not, because that information was provided in the actual published text, but it was not at the beginning of the book. Um, that's That's the question I have. Hmm. Okay. Making sure I understand it. The information, the information about Zora Neale Hurston allegedly plagiarizing uh, work related to uh, Kasula in uh, previous work that she did on him before this text, uh, that that was included at the beginning of the audiobook. that it's at the end, it's at the afterward of the actual hard copy text. Uh, and Correct. Okay. What what do people think about that difference? I would think more people I could be in error. I would think more people who access the text now are going to access it via reading it than listening to the audiobook. Uh I think even in 2018, I think more people tend to read a book than listen to the audio book. I could be in error. You all can can let me know if my thinking is off on that. Uh, but I think, yeah, more people would tend to read it than the audio book. So I think most people, uh, if they read it, they would get, if they're reading the book, they would get to that last. Um, I don't know. I knew that information before we started the audio book. So it was not new to me. And that didn't, uh, I can't say that was a heavy factor in terms of how I thought about the book or uh, processing uh, that information. It wasn't, that wasn't a big deal uh, for me. That was, uh, that had way less significance than the godmother, I'll put it that way. Uh, any, any other people have any thoughts on the difference in position, the information about the alleged uh, plagiarism? 
Yes, may I be heard? Mr. Demery Ford? Yes. Uh, okay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I really want to start off with, you know, a definition of uh, pleasurism. But is that <clears throat> just a lack of adding a footnote? You know, because you could use information that someone else has written or some research that they come up with, as long as you give them credit, you know, in a, in a footnote or whatever, uh, some type of recognition. So we already know that that's one of the, the uh, racist tactics is to create a situation and then put all the blame back on the black person who had no power in editing, uh, maybe writing, but then what got edited and uh, later on published may not have been exactly what uh, they said. And so I would just, you know, ask that question first. Uh, you know, what did they mean when they say pleasurism? My memory might be an error, but I think at minimum there was no footnote, no reference or uh, citation for the source that she is alleged uh, she allegedly uh, copied material from and it may have been uh, this is the part that I, I just don't recall I have to look back to see if they like give exact details uh, but it may have been like wholesale uh, copying of material without you know quotations as well that part I'm just not sure about but I know definitely it was no uh, citation that was a part of the allegation Right, and I think that, uh, you know, accusing a writer of that would just be in line with discrediting and making sure that uh, they did not get recognized, you know, exactly what ended up happening in her life, uh, just a victim, you know. So uh, <clears throat> including it at the beginning or wherever, once they get that out there, you know, it's almost like, you know, your credibility is shot so uh, they can discredit everything that you write but that doesn't mean that it's it's not uh, worth you know investigating uh, other books or other material that she has written I'll mute my line appreciate that Mr. Demery for I think uh, for the record uh, the person who first made this allegation that Zora Neale Hurston uh, plagiarized uh, some of her work, not this book, but previous work about Kasula, uh, was a white man, suspected racist. Uh, he also is a Hurston biographer, uh, and he put this information together. And I think he said that, you know, this should not detract from her work, her legacy. She's done, you know, tons of uh, standout work. Uh, he gave, you know, his own explanation as to, to what could uh, have happened. But he wrote a book about her like he, you know, was trying to show people, talk about her legacy. It certainly could have been an act of uh, racism, white supremacy, but uh, I could certainly see. You could look at the evidence and say, well, he was presenting. This is a part of what he presented in trying to show people her work because he did write a biography about her, which was, you know, 
drawing attention uh, to her life works and what have you. And, you know, he didn't he didn't present this as a, you know, she was no good stealing, thieving, such and such, that sort of thing. Like, you know, this was and this was way early in her career. This was before, like, their eyes were watching God and all this. Like, this was way, way long time ago. That's that's why for me, like, this is like super, super insignificant, like whatever. If she did, whatever, moving forward with things um, just because and because I knew about this before the book. Uh, this was not my first time hearing this information. Uh, did you, uh, I'm sorry. Just, I just, I, I'm sorry. I just want to clarify. I, I'm not necessarily affected by the plagiarism, however, um, by the, the accusations of plagiarism, I should say. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that I entirely believe these accusations, but I, I do think that, that, uh, those accusations would, um, I guess, influence or inform the way somebody reads this book. And I wonder just who, just why those accusations of plagiarism were included in this text uh, when they weren't necessarily needed, and then why they were included in the audio book. I mean, even if they were included in the text in the afterword, that was fine, but included in the audio book at the beginning, prior to you even getting to the actual text. I think that would inform some listeners to the uh, of the audio book uh, inform the way they perceive the information. So that's why I just asked that question. That is a good point. The afterword is not in the audio book. Um, the audio book, even though it's unabridged, the actual like text, what Zora Neale Hurston wrote, all of that is included, but all of the extras that they include with the uh, hard copy of the text is not in the audiobook, like Alice Walker's Forward is not in the uh, audiobook either. So, yeah, you don't get <clears throat> you don't get the exact duplicate uh, from the audiobook. That might be why they include that information about the uh, alleged plagiarism at the beginning of the audiobook, since the afterward is not included in the audiobook. Maybe. Um, any other thoughts on? The I guess the the placement uh, of the alleged plagiarism, uh, or if if people even think that would impact uh, how folks are hearing or reading the book. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. I don't want to say that I agree. But I think everybody pointed out that uh, the point of that wherever it's placed is to impact people's. Um, mindset for lack of words uh, when they read that book and anything else um, because if I'm not mistaken she is a renowned author for you know her eyes are watching God and some other stuff um, and I think that it doesn't make any sense to me now maybe that's just my lack of intellect but it doesn't make any sense to me unless it's malicious for you to even include in any book other than maybe her autobiography that she plagiarized anything. What is the point of that? Like that to me does not make any any sense except for like um, just a, a a hit piece and not on. I think again, a, a victim is supposedly said this not originally, but in this part or something like that, or if that's true. But either way, in my view, racists are behind it, whether indirectly or directly, and I think that that was the whole point of it because it just doesn't make no sense for it to be there 
any in any place on in in the whole book. So, yeah, I just think that that was uh, to to begin or end a book like that is to is to damage her credibility with first of all the book that is is being talked about, and second of all any other um, things that she that she does. And and one more quick thing is that people who understand something about racism are going to dismiss claims like that, whether it be by a victim or whoever. And by dismiss, I mean not hold it against her, whether it's true or not. But your average person is not going to do that, especially when it comes to a black person. Anything negative that is said about a black person in this world, on this planet, dominated by racism and white supremacy, is very, very powerful. And we already have negative um, mentalities toward each other and toward just black people, period. Everybody already has that. So when you add that, it just makes it more powerful. And I think it is going to be, you know, very impactful in people's mind. They're going to keep it in the back of their minds. And I think even those who know something about racism, they will struggle with that as well. But they might be able to better handle it than maybe the average person. Well said. Well said, Ivy. Appreciate that. I One theory I have as to why the plagiarism accusation uh, is being included, I am not a scholar on Barakun or Zora Neale Hurston. However, when you begin reading or doing research on this book, the plagiarism accusations come up pretty quickly. Uh, just in, because they'll give background uh, that this isn't the first time that she wrote about uh, this subject and then they'll go to the earlier piece and blah, blah, blah. Like that just generally seems to be the way that they go. It might be a case of uh, if you read this book and do any research and then you find uh, information about these accusations, which you assuredly will, uh, it will seem like, oh man, they tried to avoid it or what have you. It could be a situation of, let's just go ahead and address this. Uh, I think it's insignificant. The person who made these accusations said the same. Let's just go ahead and address it, get it out of the open and then move forward. That might have been the theory. It could have been an act of racism, white supremacy. Uh, oh, it's definitely an act of racism, white supremacy. <laughs> just a placement, that's all. Sorry. While I was looking for, uh, I just want to give the white man's name uh, who made this accusation or presented this charge in his uh, biography on Hurston. While I was looking for all of that, this is what I came across. Talking about her time as a journalist. This is in the 1940s. Wow, I'm hoping I can get my hands on this. During her last decade, Hurston, or 50s, apologies, 50s. During her last decade, Hurston worked as a freelance writer, Gus T, for magazines and newspapers. In the fall of 1952, she was contacted by Sam Nunn, editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, to go to Florida to cover the murder trial of Ruby McCollum. McCollum was charged with murdering a white doctor and politician who McCollum said had forced her to have sex and bear his child in a racial con game. Hurston recalled what she had seen of white male sexual dominance in the lumber camps in North Florida and discussed it with none. They both thought the case might be might be about such 
Paramore rights and wanted to expose it to a national audience. Upon reaching Live Oak, Hurston was surprised not only by the gag order the judge in the trial placed on the defense, but by her inability to get residents in town to talk about the case. Both blacks and whites were silent. She believed that she believed that might have been related to Dr. Adams' alleged involvement as well in Sam McCullum's gambling operation. Her articles were published by the newspaper during the trial. Ruby McCullum was convicted by an all-white, all-male jury and sentenced to death. Hurston had a special assignment to write a serialized account, The Life Story of Ruby McCullum, over three months in 1953 in the newspaper. Her part was ended abruptly when she and Nunn disagreed about her pay and she left. Oh, wait a minute. There's more. Um, uh, unable to pay independently to return for the appeal and second trial, she contacted journalist William Bradford Hugh, with whom she had worked at the American Mercury to try to interest him in the case. He covered the appeal and second trial and also developed material from a background investigation. Hurston shared her material with him from the first trial, but he acknowledged her only briefly in his book. Now, that is an act of racism, and this is a white guy. Ruby McCullum, woman in the Sewanee jail, which became a bestseller. Hurston celebrated that McCullum's testimony in her own defense marked the first time that a woman of African-American descent was allowed to testify as to the paternity of her child by a white man. My God, we need to, uh, we need to read this. Hurston firmly believed that Ruby McCullum's testimony sounded the death toll of Paramore rights in the segregationist South. Wow. Incredible. Zora Neale Hurston, black journalist. Uh, I will make an effort to see if we can get some of the writing that she did uh, on this, the reports and then the book. When I guess we'll find out if William Bradford Huey, if this is uh, a white person, non-white person. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. White pro I'm not able to see a picture. I'll share when I, once I find a photograph, but that is amazing. Uh, phew, the interracial con game. Wowie. Any other thoughts folks had to share about the, the placement? I got a little off track there. I, that's what I was looking for was information about the plagiarism and all. And that's what I found. Any other uh, commentary on the plagiarism? Looks like um, we I, go no. ahead. Just Sorry. William Bradford Huey looks like is a white person. Go ahead. Uh, wow. Uh, I just, I just wanted to say yes. I, um, I well said, Ivy. I do agree with that assessment. Um, but I, I think that the way you would look at it would be slightly different if you heard it prior than if you heard it afterwards. Uh, but I do agree that the accusations of plagiarism, regardless, are very damaging and probably will impact the way people view all of her work, including their eyes are watching God. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, codified software developer. Uh, other folks have any comments, thoughts they want to get in? Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to quickly say thank you guys for your kind words in that as far as the, um, the, the plagiarism, one last thing, when I first heard it on, on the audio, I remember thinking immediately, oh, man, what is this doing here? Like, here we go. Um, and that 
thinking about what you said, Gus, about how people are more likely to read, I think that's true. But I think you get a book and you read it, it's more difficult when you're reading it live or directly for your mind to wander. But when you're listening um, an audio book or something like that, something audio, it's kind of easier for your mind to wander. So I'm thinking that maybe they put that in there in the beginning so that before your mind starts wondering, I want you to remember this and I want you to, I want you to get this and I want you to hear that. And I think that's why they, they, they put it at the beginning. Whereas with the, with the book, a lot of times when you sit down to read it and you bought it and all of that, you're probably invested where you are going to read it to the end and you are going to read all of it. So I just think that that was just another way to make sure that they, that, that we heard that, that the people who listened to it, heard it and the people who actually read it they're going to get it as well because they're probably going to read it to the end whereas you know you have kind of a, a more of a chance I think to miss it um with with an audio book versus if you just sit down and read it so that's I guess I'm in my life I am going to try to see if we can get uh both the articles and this book on Ruby McCollum. Uh, this this looks like one of those that's difficult to find. Like the copies that I've seen so far on uh, Amazon are like for two hundred dollars uh, and something ridiculous. So it must be uh, the same sort of thing that they do with Dr. Welsing's books uh, and Mr. Fuller's books from time to time. So I'm going to see if I can uh, track down uh, a copy and maybe we can do that for the book club. And definitely, I'm going to see if I can find some of the articles that Miss Hurston wrote on uh, the trial, because that just seems interracial con game. Interracial con game. <laughs> just keep uh, woo, just keep adding. Let's see. Yeah, I'll post some uh, links once I can find them. That just, that's amazing. That's why just Doing a little research, that's one of the ways that you can learn a lot about racism, white supremacy. I think I've heard Mr. Fuller uh, say that <clears throat> most of the black people that you know we regard, look up to, think well of, uh, most of them, it's for what they did about racism, white supremacy. Um, that's generally, I mean, Coretta Scott King, uh, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Asada Shakur, Winnie Mandela, on and on and on. Most of the people that we have some regard for, it's because of what they did about racism, white supremacy. Um, just learning about their lives. You can you can learn quite a bit about the system, what it is, how it works. Uh, let's see. So if people have access to the Pittsburgh Courier, uh, Black newspaper, Importance of Black Journalists, uh, it's January to March, 1953, and it's a series of articles, uh, actually from October 1952 to 1953, and then the life story of Ruby McCollum, uh, January to March 1953. But a series in the Pittsburgh Courier, if you uh, have access, if you have like a major university college library in your area or a really good public library, uh, folks that are in D.C., uh, Library of Congress, uh, you can probably go uh, and see if they have that material. That would make a great field trip. Uh, if you have teens, oh, fantastic. You could go read all about the Me Too movement, right? If you have any teens and they have any work assignments where they have to do a written project uh, on the Me Too movement, bang, 
Black History, Me Too, right there, decades before, same exact problem and a trial, no less. Oh, phenomenal. I'll see if I can uh, track that down. They'll probably have that at the University of Washington Library. Any other folks have commentary that they need to get in? Everyone satisfied? Oh, uh, caller, last four digits, 5771. 5771, did you have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and uh, listeners. Um, I wanted to uh, comment about the plagiarism and what uh, Mr. Demery Ford had said about uh, uh, just being a fact of you know, just missing footnotes. And it goes back to an experience I had in college in a class where I wrote a paper. And what happened was I forgot to footnote some information of a text that we were using in that particular class. And when, uh, when that happened, I was reported to the dean in regards to plagiarizing my paper. Now, everything was footnoted with the exception of those footnotes. Now, I was still, you know, trying to learn how to write papers and everything, but uh, yeah, I was reported uh, for plagiarism. Uh, however, uh, you know, and, and I had a racist professor too. So, uh, however, the whites, uh, whites let me off and uh, was able to accept that it was um, basically out of ignorance that I did that. Uh, but they sent me to a writing class that I had to do for uh, two weeks in order to uh, do that. But you know, obviously, it's practicing racism in university because of the fact that, you know, I, I was still learning how to write research papers. Uh, and I was assuming that, you know, the textbook that we were using were, you know, was just, you know, given knowledge. But uh, apparently, uh, there was this big brouhaha about, you know, me plagiarizing a paper, which I actually didn't. But, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, when, when Mr. Demery Ford said that, I, I thought about that situation. But I also wanted to tackle uh, some of the stuff in the appendix. Uh, it was confusing with the, to, uh, I think it's called the Takio game, it was supposed to be a memory game, um, because I guess this is sort of like symbolic of Casulo's, uh, you know, memory. Uh, but then when you go on to the next part about, you know, stories told by, uh, stories Casulo uh, told me, he starts to say that he forgot about all that. And I remember early in the book, he was talking about how he remembered stuff. So I was very confused about that, you know, and, you know, it kind of, you know, kind of makes me think, you know, about the editing in this book. It, you know, it's been talked about all night in regards to uh, the editing in this book and, you know, the contradictions that, that that's going on in this book. Um, the, uh, the one that stood out to me, uh, in far as the appendix was the monkey and the camel. Now, I kind of looked at look at that symbolically in regards to uh, in regards to uh, non-white black people in relations to white people. Uh, you got the the monkey who's basically you know doing all the work for the camel, giving you know him you know the melons and everything, and then when he gets tired, the camel is accusing the monkey of being you know, no good lazy nigger and, you know, trying to, you know, put him on trial, you know, just for, you know, because he's not giving, 
you know, uh, all the melons that, that the camel wants. So I look at that as, you know, non-white black people's relation to white people and, and white supremacy working, you know, in that way where, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that he, uh, Casulo is talking about slavery because, you know, obviously uh, after slavery, you know, uh, non-white black people were considered lazy, uh, you know, since, uh, you know, since we were, uh, you know, so-called released from, sla- you know, slavery. Uh, I, too, was kind of confused on that last story of the lion and the woman. The only thing I can think of in regards to that, you can know, because there's a lot of symbolism uh, in that story in regards to the lion I guess the lion is uh, a symbol of, you know, justice and, you know, the, the lion is uh, trying to get justice for her children uh, because they were killed by the, 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 the man's boy and uh, the dogs being a symbol of loyalty. And, and I guess at the end, the, the, the man broke the loyalty of the dogs and he ended up dying. But I just I, I can't put it together. I was just 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 trying to piece the symbolism together uh, with the animals. And also, too, in between, you know, you had the biblical stories of Jonah and the whale and Abraham. So I guess that's a, you know, that's just a mark of his, uh, you know, uh, of his Christianity uh, that he wanted to uh, display. So uh, that's all for now in my life. Grand. <clears throat> uh, the University of Washington, I've talked about uh, the grand resources in the great city of Seattle. Uh, the University of Washington at Seattle, uh, they, or it really doesn't matter as long as you're in the UW system, uh, they do have access, online access to the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, so I am going to make a little field trip uh, down the block and go on campus and get the articles that Ms. Hurston wrote for the Courier and see if I can get uh, PDFs of what she wrote about the McCullum trial. Uh, in fact, I can even look to see if they have that book specifically, uh, the book that uh, Robert McCollum wrote, I'll see if they have, or not Robert McCollum, uh, written on Ruby McCollum, uh, written by William uh, Huey. I'll see if they have that at the library as well. That would be grand, and maybe we can <clears throat> get that in the book club down the road. Any other comments folks want to get in? Questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. Just the one um, spoke up. I wanted to ask, uh, can I ask a question about uh, racism in general? Uh, I prefer if the book club, we can stay on topic. Just people have uh, a tendency over the years to float off onto all kinds of things. We started off talking about the book club and somehow now we're talking about get out and circus animals and woof, like uh yeah if you can wait 24 hours to the compensatory call in that would be super super great okay i'll just say this real quick then um when you said when you made that the joke about something about you could just say anything because you know the white people hate for it about the monkey thing man i'll, I'll see you in court gus i know you're not supposed to sue black people but i'll see you in court because my my side started hurting so bad just laughing when you said that that was it i'll mute my line for sure 
being truthful. And I think I've heard that from other black people before. They just Thomas in New York said he does that. Just make up stuff when, you know, white people are coming around hankering for good darky stories. Make up a good one. Uh, anything else, uh, folks? Got to get in question, comment. Last time commenting on Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. I will assume folks are good. Looks like swing and a miss. They do not have uh, Mr. Huey's book uh, at the library. I will have to keep digging. This is an older publication, so might be a little bit more challenging to find, but I will continue searching. Uh, in the meantime, uh, once I am able to get those articles that Zora Neale Hurston wrote, I will share. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited about that. That's the sort of thing that I would have, I think Pam would have been really excited about uh, as well, just to get that long history, uh, especially if I heard or if I read that correctly, that this is a black female who killed a white man around sexual terrorism uh, and abuse. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I would love lots of information. And just, I think that is so critically important Zora Neale Hurston taking her time and energy uh, to cover this trial and recognizing the importance of getting this out, <clears throat> the sexual uh, terrorism that had gone on for so long. Uh, but also this notion that black people don't fight back. I thought about that yesterday with Omar Thornton. If for nothing else, uh, he should be brought up every August for that reason alone. If nothing, if for no other reason, it seems like there's a lot to learn, but if for no other reason, that nonsense that black people are cowards. Black people uh, never fought back ever since the continent. We just worked, cooperated with whites, exactly what we heard in the text. That's exactly what we've done forever. And that's why we continue to suffer from racism. I hear that all the time as well. I don't hear that quite as often as uh, black people sold other black people, but I hear it pretty regularly. Uh, it is extremely important to be able to stop that every single time. Whoa. You are very ill-informed. You can, however, which way you want it. If you want ancient history, whatever you consider ancient to be, uh, if you need some older versions of black people fighting back, many of those, if you need more current, how current do you need it to be? Omar Thornton current, Ruby McCollum current, lots of different versions. We've talked about this repeatedly. That was one of the reasons that I really appreciated uh, Edward uh, Baptist, the half has never been told because he has lots of footnoted anecdotes of rebellions, uprisings, black people killing uh, white slave masters uh, in order to end the torture and terrorism. But lots of illustrations. We have not been cowards. We have shown a lot of courage in the face of flagrant terrorism. Uh, I was well, folk, are folks satisfied? Anything else folks need to get in? Just wanted to uh, ask the uh, question uh, because I think uh, the central figure in this book uh, is, uh, you know, it's an interesting subject. I was wondering if uh, if there's any information on a more scientific interview or analysis of uh, someone who. Uh, was uh, uh, a uh, participant, unwillingly, of course, in the uh, 
Atlantic uh, voyages, terroristic voyages. Uh, is there any, is there anyone who have uh, did any notations or books or a book on uh, in a more scientific way on uh, such any any anybody who uh, was uh, in the Atlantic slave trade as a uh, slave? What do you mean when you say more scientific? Uh, where they're actually uh, interviewing the person and uh, that person is uh, basically narrating uh, their experiences. That's not what happened here? Okay, well, like I said, I, I, I wasn't involved with the uh, the reading. Uh uh, hmm. I wasn't okay. That basically was taking place with with this book. Huh? That basically what it was with this book was uh, the person actually stating their uh, experiences. Okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's in the archives. You can check it out and come to your uh, own conclusion, or you can. Uh, get the the book uh, and and uh, Zora Neale Hurston uh, in addition to being a, a fiction author she was an anthropologist that's why I questioned uh, I mean her her credentials to put together a, a scientific book are pretty solid uh, allegations of plagiarism aside her, her credentials for a scientific piece are, are pretty pretty impeccable well was this the only one uh, is there any other similar the there's a group uh, of there's like a massive anthology it's referenced in uh edward baptist the half has never been told where they run around and talked to uh former slaves now i'm not sure if any of those folks were had been through the middle passage but they went around and collected tons of narratives. Uh, it would just be. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm aware of that one. I, I, okay. I, that's why I was specifically talking about uh, any other uh, victims other than uh, uh, this, this person who actually was on the voyages. Oh, Alato Equiano. That's one. We talked about him in uh, Vincent. Oh, I can't believe it. The. Uh, Delectable Negro. There we go. Alato Equiano. Uh, he that's one that's a very popular one uh, where he was very young and wrote about his experience uh, going through the Middle Passage. I think there are a few a few others. Um, that's one right off the top. We talked about that one before on the program. Alato Equiano. OK. OK. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, to. Uh... Uh, to retire firefighters point, I remember there was a there was a African slave named Abdul Rahman uh, who used to be uh, a slave for John Quincy Adams. Uh, he was uh, he was actually a prince in Africa somewhere, and he has an autobiography. I think it might be in the Library of Congress, but uh, that's a that's a name that you probably might want to look up. Okay. I'm sure there are uh, some others uh, as well. I'm looking online. That's if folks have, let's see. 
Yeah, I have to. I'll check online and then I can. I'll share uh, tomorrow. I'll post as I find uh, others, but it seems like there probably are a few others uh, where it's actually a black person who went through the middle passage and then they got a, a story written about their life. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to um, make a comment about what you said about people who say the black people are cowards and that's why we're still in this situation. The reality of it is that we've been, you know, terrorized and it's only logical to comply with terrorists. I mean, they did that on, you know, 9-11 and in so many other um, instances. And yes, the vast majority of, you know, black people have not, um, have not um, refused, I guess, to comply with terrorists. And that goes for every other group. But the thing is, the people who didn't comply with terrorists, they didn't sit around, and, and I don't say this, and, and I, I, I somewhat hesitate to say this because I don't want to speak negatively about other victims or speak in a way that promotes conflict between other victims. However, the, the people who did not comply with terrorists, like Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Lavelle Mixon and um, Mark Essex and a bunch of other people, they didn't sit around complaining about other people not doing this or that. So these people who are saying this, it's like, okay, well, what are you doing? Just like Pam the Great, she, she mentioned this. You know, what are you doing or what have you done? I mean, ultimately, I would imagine that the reason you're not in greater, confi greater confinement or in the grave is because what you're saying is that you can't find anybody, I guess, that will organize with you to, you know, take it to these race soldiers. But the people who didn't comply with the terrorists, they didn't sit around and wait for that. They went and, you know, did whatever it was that they were going to do. So it's like, ultimately, you're just talking. So my thing is this, what makes you any different from us? That you are not doing anything either. You, you are proving that you are just as afraid as we are. And I would even go so far as to say this, that you are even just as logical as we are. That isn't to say that the people who didn't, who didn't comply with the terrorists that they are illogical, no. It is logical to do either, to, to fight for your freedom in, in those ways or to, you know, be afraid and, and be concerned about your immediate um, preservation and your immediate survival. So that's, you know, that, that was all I had. I'll move on. Right on. Uh, it looks like they have quite a few different books that are, this is a very popular genre uh, or was a very popular genre uh, in terms of books written by or about individuals who have been uh, enslaved. Uh, so if you go to Wikipedia's page for Alato Equiano and then look at the bottom, there's a huge section, which I thought it would be, uh, that gives like this is a genre of books, narratives about these type of folks who've been enslaved. And you can just scroll down there and wade through uh, and pick out the ones that are older, like the early 1800s and that era and pick out the ones that, you know, look like these might be someone who actually was uh, on the Middle Passage uh, to see if there are others uh, from that era. I have to go through myself and, and pick out a few to see which ones uh, oh, yep. John Andrew Jackson was born on. Oh, nope, nope, nope. His father was. But yeah, you just have to go through and pick out uh, which ones and see if you can can nab one uh, from a person who was either 
on the middle passage or where they were just kind of, oh, they made it so easy. You can just kind of mouse over and the information will pop up. So you'll be able to see immediately uh, where the person was born at. Oh, I found one. Pierre Toussaint. That's one uh, where you can nab uh, nab some information about him. I think they have some books about him. Uh, just go through and pick out and see if you, you find any that stick out or resonate. Any other folks have question, thought they need to get in? Yes, Gus, I wanted to say one last thing. I think you were on to something with that uh, part of Ruby McCollum. It seems that, uh, you know, that case went all the way to Supreme Court, and uh, I think she was a wealthy black woman, and it was, you know, white men would just do what they wanted to do to the black women at that time. And then, you know, I guess whatever happened, happened. And then <clears throat> it was a question of rights, you know, what she had the right to defend herself. So I'd be you know, interested to find out more about that and how I think in context where Zola Neil Hurston trusted <clears throat> this uh, William Hugh or whoever, because she thought that he would collaborate with her in writing on that case. And then he double-crossed her, of course, you know, wouldn't. Uh, took all her information and made it his own. Uh, and I think she asked him for a little transportation to come up to the trial, which would have just been pocket change for him, and he refused to do that. So it's the same story over and over. Uh, uh, I think that's an interesting uh, uh, thing to pursue, though. But thanks, Dustin. Uh, I'll mute my For sure. I'm going to make that my Monday project at the library. I might even, I can make that double duty. I can go to the library and then I can go uh, rowing. Seattle is so cool. The University of Washington is right on the lake. And you can just walk from the library, go out and do some rowing. Uh, anything else folks need to get in? did a, a great job um, with the narration on this one and the um the worth the warmth of other songs. I mean, I like the way that she did the the um the dialect and things like that, and just you know just how she just how she narrates in general. That was it. Robin Miles, excellent job. Not uh, Joe Morton, but outstanding work. Uh, and hopefully, we'll have outstanding narration from one of our listeners beginning next week uh, with Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. Uh, we will be starting that in honor of Pam. Uh, hopefully uh, someone has the time and energy. I know that is, uh, it is labor. I have done that myself uh, many times over. It certainly is labor. Uh, I would be tickled to do it this time, but don't think I could stay composed to get through it uh, for the duration. Uh, so if any folks think they would be able drop me an email and let me know until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. The shock is just now hitting me for the last two months. Every Friday at this time, I have been at teacher training. It is just sinking in. This is the first time in two months that at this time I am not at teacher training. Thank God. Woo. 
Uh, with that, tomorrow we will be here for the compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We will catch up on what has gone down over the last week. Observations, uh, questions, suggestions. Uh, we'll get uh, Ivy's question that she wanted to uh, pose today. We'll get that tomorrow as well. Uh, and other thoughts, uh, tune in, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks to everyone for participating in the book club. I hope it was worthy of your Friday evening. Uh, should be in the archives post haste. Uh, again, reading is more important than watching television. Dr. Welsing certainly encourage that. If you have other uh, suggestions for the book club, let me know. Uh, we'll get to it after Pam, although I'm very intrigued about that uh, Ruby McCullum uh, situation. If I was able to get my hands on that book, Woof, that one would be waiting for whenever we get done with uh, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. That's the one that we would be waiting to read. Anywho, uh, again, I know summer's winding down. If you want to be out, frolic, have fun. Great. Enjoy. I will be out rowing myself on Monday. That said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, racist, they do not pause just because the weather is nice. Uh, we still want to be codified, attempted counter-racist soldiers. Uh, let's make sure that we can use our brain computer as best we can to make phenomenal decisions on the system of white supremacy. In that same vein, out and about in a vehicle, let us be sober and buckled up every single time driver or passenger let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, a brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.